Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Over the last month, we have been studying the five solas of the Reformation. And today, our topic is sola deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. This is the capstone of the solas, and we'll explain why. Um, But it was with uh, great excitement that I uh, approach this topic, because it is very broad and yet incredibly glorious and uh, lifting up of the name of our Father and Lord, because it is all-encompassing. It answers the why of all things, because it is the glory of God that is the beginning of all things, for all things were created for his glory, all things exist for his glory, and one day all things will end for his glory. It is all about his glory. It answers the why, why anything, why did God create, why did God save us, why did God do anything, why does anything occur that occurs, it occurs for his glory. And this is a grand and glorious truth, and the implications are very broad and extensive. And this is something that was debated throughout the entire uh, Reformation time, and even up to this day. And it answers that why. And it may feel a little bit like an outlier to you, as as we've been going through these five solas over the last month. Uh, Sola Scripturia, that the scriptures alone are the final authority. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That might make sense why that was debated, why it had to be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But to the glory of God alone, who could possibly be against that? Everyone's for the glory of God, right? We all believe that God must be glorified. And is there anything that would be against the glory of God alone? And the answer to that question is resoundingly yes, unfortunately. It should not be the case, but it is. In fact, sola deo gloria might be one of the most rejected doctrines in all of Christendom. We'll explain why. What this means, though, and and I'm going to be honest uh, with sola deo gloria, the reason why it's rejected is this is where we struggle most. And I, I don't mean just unbelievers. I mean believers as well. This is where we struggle most because there are really two different levels upon which we might object to sola dea gloria, for all things being to the glory of God. And the first one is this. It speaks to a glorious truth. There, there's an implication that's, that's involved in, in sola dea gloria. And it speaks to this very idea that, that is glorious and wonderful. And yet very few people are either willing or able to accept this truth. And yet when you do accept this truth, it is one of the most freeing and glorifying and graceful things that you will ever encounter. What is this truth? The truth is, it's not about you. What's not about you, you might ask? All of it. Everything. The Bible, salvation, Christianity, creation, Life itself, it's not about you. Now, we are certainly recipients of God's love and and, and the gifts of salvation, but those things are not about you. 
They're about God. And they're about God glorifying himself. These are, these are things that are very difficult for people to accept and acknowledge. And, and this is borne out by survey after survey and, and study after study by Barna Group and Pew uh, Group that, that does studies on believers. And for the majority of Christianity, um, if you were to ask what Christianity is about, what is, what is the purpose of all of this, the majority of the answers boil down to something around self-improvement. That the purpose of Christianity is for us to become better people, for us to progressively get better and better and better. Now, for certain, having encounters with Jesus leaves you changed. And to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit no doubt leads to a better and better life. But is that the purpose of it? That's not the reason that you are saved. The purpose of your salvation, the purpose of life, the purpose of Christianity above all things is for the glory of God and alone for the glory of God. That's what all of this is about. That's difficult for people to accept. And then there's a second reason why this is difficult for people to accept. There is an implication that God is then something other than what they want him to be. There's this picture that people have of what God is in their mind, but when it is implied that everything that occurs is for God's glory, that doesn't quite fit with their image of what they think God ought to be. Isaiah um, speaks much about the glory of God. As, As God is speaking to the prophet Isaiah, the Lord says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. If it's all about God's glory, in some people's minds, they think that that makes God look selfish. That the very idea that, that I was created and the only reason I exist is for his glory, so it's, so it's all about him. Um, and furthermore, Exodus uh, describes God as jealous, that he is a, a jealous God. In fact, uh, Exodus 34.4 says, my name is jealous. And, and these are things we are not supposed to be jealous uh, we are not supposed to be self-absorbed. So how is it that God can be self-absorbed? So, so if, if, if we cannot do these things, we cannot fathom the idea that, that God is God and that God is the ultimate good. So what is the answer? The reality is, and we must all come to the reality of the idea of divinity and the very nature of what God is. First of all, God is God. Amen? God is God, and there is no other. There is no one that is above him. There is no greater good. God is greatest good. There is none higher. There is nothing that could possibly be conceived that is more holy than he is, that is more loving than he is, that is more great than he is. He is the end-all, be-all, ultimate being and nothing can possibly be conceived that is greater than he. He must be jealous for his righteousness. He must be zealous for his glory. Because if he is not, the reason why is that he is the greatest good. And if he were to share his glory with anything else, he would be sharing his glory with something that is less than him. If he is sharing his glory with something that is less than him, then he is an idolater. 
And if God is an idolater, then he is not God at all. God is God. There is no other. There is no greater. He is greatest good. He must be jealous for his glory. He must be jealous for his righteousness. For he is God. And he is not a sinner. We are sinners. We are not God. We cannot do what God can. Only God can do what God can. For he is holy. And he is righteous. And he is glory. Everything that is done... Everything that occurs, occurs ultimately either directly or indirectly for his glory. Now, as we said, who could be against this? Many are against this. But as we look into the context of the Reformation, what were the very doctrines that were being argued against the Catholic Church? And we're not here just to single out the errors that were occurring in the Catholic Church because this extends well beyond the Catholic Church. What were the arguments that were being made by the Reformers in that time? And it's very important to understand when we're talking about these, these five solas and the arguments that were being made from the Reformation, what the core idea was. And, and we've been going through these five ideas, these five solas, Scripture alone, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. But what does that mean? What is, what is the argument It's very important to understand. And if you only remember one thing over the past month about what is the Reformation, what was it about, what was the core idea, I know we've thrown a lot at you the last month, but if you come away with one thing and remember one thing only, let it be about this. The Reformation was a massive shift from man-centered theology to God-centered theology. Much of theology at the time, and I would argue even through uh, up to date, even into mainline Christianity, is about man. It all centers around what man gets, what man does, what it is about. And ultimately, for man-centered theology, is about man. Whereas in the Reformed said it is not about man, the ultimate purpose of all things is about God. So there is this massive shift from man-centered theology to God-centered theology. And, and how did this play out? It played out on multiple ways, and, and this was true on multiple levels. Number one, the Reformers and the Catholic Church disagreed about the very nature of life itself, about the very purpose of why we were here. Uh, the great theologian and philosopher Thomas Aquinas, uh, the Catholic philosopher, uh, argued that the whole purpose of life, man's greatest felicity, as he argued, that's, that's his greatest good or his greatest happiness, lies in the contemplation of God. Now, the contemplation of God is a very, very good thing, but is that man's ultimate happiness? Is that where man's ultimate purpose lies? The Reformers argued no. The ultimate purpose of man, though he ought to contemplate God, is not about what he thinks about God. It's not about his opinion about God. It's about God's purposes. And God's purposes were to glorify himself. And so any attempt to insert ourselves into the place of God is to steal the glory of God. This could not be. And Now you may recall uh, what was later uh, classified Uh, and clarified about the very nature of life is in the Westminster Smaller Catechism, where the very opening line of the Westminster Smaller Catechism is, what is the ultimate purpose of man? 
And a lot of you probably know what this statement is. The only purpose of man is to what? Glorify God and what? Enjoy him forever. That is the ultimate purpose of what we are to do and why we are here. And so that was the celebration of God's ultimate purposes. His ultimate purposes is not about us. It's about him. And it's about glorifying him. And in the Catholic Church, there was a big split between the sacred and the secular. Meaning there was the sacred areas of life. There was the church. And then there was the secular areas, the rest of life. And strangely enough, this was really an assault on the glory of God. And the reason why is there is no sacred and secular area. It's all for the glory of God. And so what this led to was multiple errors. The church was the dispensary of God's grace. So Thomas Aquinas argued through the Catholic Church that grace was dispensed through the sacraments, that you had to come to the church in order to be saved. The church was the dispensary of God's grace. And what's worse, you had to come to the priests to get that. It was sacramental in as much as you had to get the grace through the sacraments and sacerdotal because you had to go to the priesthood to get it. They were the only way that you could approach Christ for salvation. And this was man placing himself in the seat of Christ. That they had to come to the church, that you had to talk to these men that were putting on the holy robes, that were acting as God's mediators of his grace. And the only way that you could be saved, and since you were living in the secular areas of life, you had no purpose in the sacred areas of life, you had to look to these men wearing the fancy clothes, hoping to point you in a direction where maybe, maybe you could live a good enough life where you could be saved. And if they weren't pointing to themselves, they were pointing to other dead men like them to point you how you could maybe live a life that maybe might be pleasing enough to Jesus. Now let me clarify. Here, We are not pointing to us for salvation. You don't come to church to be saved. You are not looking to the pastors or the elders for salvation. We are not pointing to ourselves for how to do this. There's only one place we're pointing, and that's to the cross. That's where we're going to push you. We are pushing you to the finished work of Christ. Why? Because it's for His glory alone. That is the only reason that the grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone exists. It is because it is for his glory that salvation is be through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not of us, Lord, not of us, but of him. It's all about him. And so there is this split where you had to come to the holy people wearing the holy robes. And Martin Luther was to become one of these men. He was to become one of these men that was to put on the holy robes and the holy hat, and he was supposed to point to himself about being the way to be saved, or at least the example of how to live the right life. And he couldn't do it. He couldn't justify it scripturally, and he knew internally there was no way that he measured up. And so throughout his life, his goal was to push people towards the cross, not towards the church. 
And the entirety of the solas were about this. And if you're recalling the five solas, I, I would say sola dea gloria is the capstone of all of the solas. And the reason why is every single one of the solas is saying, in, a, in effect, the same thing. It's about God and not about man. Sola Scriptura. God is the final word. God is the final authority, not man. To God be the glory. Grace alone. Our salvation is an act of grace from God, not by man. God gets the glory, not man. Faith alone, not works. In Christ alone, not you. In all of these things, it is God who gets the glory. This is the meaning of all things. The glory of God, that he would be lifted up. We've been using this this phrase, the glory of God. But what do we mean by that? We really should define it. And it's one of these things that, uh, we we talk about the glory of God, it's a very common phrase uh, that we'll use uh, over and over again. And maybe you kind of, sort of understand what I mean by the glory of God. But if we took a moment to try to define it, it gets a little bit more difficult. Because we are trying to use limited words to explain something that is infinite, that has no limit, that has no beginning and no end. And there is really no verbal description or definition that could do it justice. And so you may know and have an idea what the glory of God is, but if I were to put you on the spot and ask you, well, what's, what's the, what is the glory of God, that would be a little bit difficult. It, it, it is a very difficult thing. And, and I will attempt to describe it, um, but I, I do it with a certain amount of trepidation. And the reason why is, is for those very reasons. The glory of God is limitless. Our understanding is, is limited. The words that we use is limited. And any definition that would begin would be uh, insufficient. And so with those provisos, um, I, what I would argue the glory of God is is God's invisible attributes made manifest for the purpose of being known or being glorified, being worshipped, to receive honor and praise and and, and glory. And so let me me back up and, and, and describe what I mean. His invisible qualities like his grace and his love and his, his power, uh, his wrath, those things that, that are not visible, they're not tangible, but in some way is, is made tangible, made visible, or through an action is made real. And, and that is done for the purpose of being made known throughout the universe, throughout the world, in heaven and in earth. To receive the praise that is ascribed to him, that is due him. That is the glory of God. Is that the entirety of the glory of God? No. But for the purpose of the sermon, I think it might be helpful to describe some of the ways that God manifests his glory. And all of this circles back again and again and again to the glory of God. For that is the meaning, the beginning and end of all things. So, how is God's glory manifested? One example is through creation. God created, and he created to be made known. It's important to say God did not create because he was bored. 
He did not create because he was looking for something to do. God was already perfectly fulfilled before creation. There was nothing lacking in God at any point, not before or after creation. But God, looking to glorify himself, created. And we see multiple examples of this in Scripture. We are going to be looking at a lot of different passages. Uh, This is a topical thematic sermon. And so we're going to be looking at a few different things here. Uh, but, But many of which I find very fascinating. Isaiah 6, 3. Here's an example. There are angels worshiping. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, you might expect them to say, holy, 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 and the whole earth is filled with his holiness. But they say, no, it's filled with his glory. It is a manifestation of his holiness. That the universe and the earth exists displays his holiness. And we've said this many, many times, God's vision for creating. This, this is our vision as a church. Isaiah eleven nine, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Or there's also a parallel verse in Habakkuk uh, chapter 2. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is why he created. This is his vision that he would be known on heaven and earth and glorified for who he is. From beginning and to the end, Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God created all of the heavens and all of the earth and all of its magnificent glory just to display who he was. And it's not just here on the earth, the globe that we're familiar with, but all of the heavens, all the things that we can see and all the things that we can't see, vast, uninhabited galaxies of incomprehensible detail and comprehension, which we will never even see, much less comprehend, exist because it can, because God willed it to be. Because out of the sheer force of his will, they exist to declare that God is great. Now man looks at the glory and the entirety of the creation and of the stars and they despair. Because they feel so small. How could we be so empty? This is nothing. We are nothing in the scope of all of creation, of space and time. But creation was not made to make you feel big. It was made to glorify God. It was made to elevate Him. And it was made to make us feel small. It's not for our glory. It's for His. And ultimately, everything that exists, including us, is for His glory. For we are part of creation. We are one of God's creations. And our very purpose for existing is for the glory of God. That His name would be praised. And there is a problem. Man fell. Even in the creation that points right to our Savior, man fell. Paul puts a very fine point on this idea. And and if you will, um, I'll spend a little bit more time. Turn to Romans 1. Romans 1, uh, verses 18 through 23. Where he describes, and pay attention to what, what Paul describes from creation. Starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now pay attention. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The very things that were created to point us towards the glory of God were worshipped by man. They fell short of the glory of God and all have sinned. That is what it means to fall short of the glory of God, is to exchange the very glory of God for something that is lesser. To not glorify the God of all gods, but to glorify the creation, to glorify ourselves. The very nature of sin itself, falling short of the glory of God, is exchanging glory for something that is lesser. It is the exchanging of the glory of God. Our very purpose for existing is to glorify him, and yet we don't. That is the very essence of sin. It is the very missing of our very purpose of being created. But there is a very fortunate other manifestation of God's glory. God's glory is manifested through salvation. He glorifies himself through creation, but he is glorifying himself ultimately through the redemption of sinners. And this process is a process of God. It's not a process of us. We, in all of our efforts, try to insert ourselves into the process of salvation. But to do so is to exchange God's place for us in the process of salvation. Your salvation is not for you. Your salvation is for God. Your salvation exists for the very purpose of glorifying God. Are you happy recipients of this process? Yes. But the end goal, the end game of Christianity is not for you to be saved. It's a great thing. The end goal of Christianity is the glory of God. And this is where we see our, our passage, where Paul is making the point in Ephesians 1, 3-14, which Lawrence read. He is comforting his people, and try, Paul is trying to extol the glories of their salvation and make it clear from the very beginning that the process of their salvation is not about them. The process of their salvation is about God. And he makes it very clear that this is not a plan that was just hatched at the last minute. Salvation itself was a plan that began before the very foundations of the earth. Your salvation is a love gift from God the Father to God the Son. As we see, from the very, before the very foundations of the earth, God the Father gave a love gift to God the Son to glorify Him. He gave him a gift of worshipers, of those to be redeemed. And God the Son would glorify God the Father by redeeming those that have been given to him. And the Holy Spirit 
would glorify God the Father and God the Son by applying that salvation to them. By giving them the gift of faith. And through this process of overflowing love of the Trinity before the foundations of the earth would bring together everything in heaven and everything in earth so that all things and all of earth and all of heaven and all of earth would shout that God is love. And if you want to know what love is, you look at the redeemed. Because this is the process through which God has done. Now, as you can see, there is no room for our works in this process of salvation that God has enacted before the very beginning, the foundations of time. Jesus repeats this in his prayer. Turn to John chapter 17, starting in verse 1. The context of this is Jesus talking to his disciples, but he's praying to God the Father. This is just before the cross. He knew what he was going to accomplish and what he already had accomplished in eternity past. He says in this prayer, his high priestly prayer, John 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Go to verse 9. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. God gave worshipers to Jesus as a love gift that he would redeem. All of our salvation, everything that we are, and everything that we have received is a love gift of the Trinity to each other. We are the happy beneficiaries that scream to all of creation that God is love that God is great, that God is glorified. Any part in that process that we insert ourselves in becomes man-centric theology, and we do it all the time. We make it about ourselves. We make it about a decision that we made, or we, we are saved because we prayed a prayer, or, or we were just smarter. We are able to out-debate other people about certain theologies, or I am saved simply because I'm smarter than the other guy that rejected it. You are saved because Christ redeemed you. You are saved because saving you is glorifying to God the Father. There is nothing that you have brought to the table in and of yourself that glorifies God. But God, in his vast and infinite glory, not only saves us, but he sanctifies us. And yes, even glorifies us to be like Christ, everything that we have, all of the glories, all of the riches that are due to Christ because of Christ's works are then bestowed upon the beloved. We are heirs of Christ's kingdom because of his work, not because of ours. It is a glorious in reality truth that God is glorified by glorifying his people. That one day we will be like Christ, heirs to the kingdom. We are adopted into his family. 
And, and when I say that, that we are a gift to Jesus, that's not to say that we are, we're not Jesus' pet. You know, we're not, we're not his toy or his plaything. We are his adopted brothers and sisters. And it's not because of anything we brought to the table. It's because God is most glorified by saving sinners like you and me. As Charles Spurgeon put it, there is nothing that we bring to the table. There is nothing that we have done for our salvation other than the sin that made it necessary. It is the sin that we have done that made our very salvation necessary. And all of this is to the praise of his glory. In Revelation 5.12, the elders are sitting around and they sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The Spirit having given you the gift of faith is for the praise of Jesus' glory, that it should be for His glory and His uplifting praise. It is worthy that He is. And it is through the work of the Spirit that the Lamb who was slain would receive His reward. And this is why we pray. This is why we glorify God in everything that we do. Salvation is a grand manifestation of God's glory. But it's not only through the salvation of sinners. It is also salvation of sinners. It is also in the judgment of sinners that God is glorified. Now this may be something that perhaps we're less comfortable with. We may not, even as believers, like the idea that God judges sinners or that that sin must be dealt with in such a severe way. But this is spoken again and again throughout scriptures. Ezekiel 28, 12, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon, and I will manifest my glory in your midst, that they shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her and manifest my holiness in her. And if you want to know how all of this ends, it ends, and when I say all of this, I mean all of creation. All of this ends with a lot of alleluias and glory to God towards the very end of the age. Revelation 19, 1 through 3. He says, After this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. It is not only in the salvation of sinners that God is glorified, but it is in the judgment of sinners. Now the question is, why is it that sin must be judged so severely? Uh, sin is finite, right? That, that there's a limit to what, what sin is. And that's true. But sin is an attack on the very glory of God. It is us falling short of the glory of God. And though sin is finite, the glory upon which sin is attacking is not. God is zealous for his glory because he must. There is no greater good. There is no higher power. There is no greater meaning than God's glory. Any attack upon the glory of God must be atoned. It must be paid for. And the payment 
for assaulting God's glory is unlimited punishment. We may not like that idea. We may not like the idea and the nature of what God does, but God is infinitely holy. He is infinitely glorious and righteous, and we are not. If God were to treat his holiness and glorious nature as cheap by failing to punish sins, then he himself would be treating his glory as cheap. He would be an idolater, and he would not be God. God is glorious. God will not be mocked. He is infinitely holy, and he is infinitely righteous. And all sins must be atoned for, without question. The question, though, then is, who is atoning for those sins? Will it be you, or will it be Christ? If you claim Christ as your Savior, you are claiming the works of Christ to atone for your sins, which you should be paying the price for. But God is glorified by redeeming you. God is glorified by forgiving these infinite offenses against him for the praise of his glory. And for our response is glory. It is alleluia. As we said, the way that all of this ends from beginning to end, it's all about his glory. And one day, all of this will be made right. And and for the call to worship, we read Romans chapter 8. And this was... Paul giving comfort to a peoples and a church that were facing hardship, persecution. They were being attacked on all sides, and he comforts them by giving them perspective. That yes, this world is broken, but one day God is going to make all of this right. There will be no injustice, and we know there will be no injustice because God is the judge. God is going to make all of this right, and we know that because it's for his glory. And for his glory, all of this will be made right. That is how all of this ends. And for the glorious praise of his nature and the glorious praise of who he is. Jesus the Son is the ultimate manifestation of God's glory. Now, Jesus was not created. He is not a created being. He eternally existed with God, the Trinity, from the very beginning. But he did manifest himself in the flesh. And we read that Jesus himself was a glorious manifestation. In Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 4, it speaks of Jesus. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. We serve a risen Savior, The reason we serve is for his glory. And the reason that he saved is for the glory of the Godhead. That is an object of love. And the idea here is not to make you feel bad about your salvation, but to point it in the right direction. You are saved in love. And because of that love, 
we give glory to God. We point you towards the very purpose of why you were saved and the very purpose to why we all exist. For the believer, the answer to this purpose is glory. For the unbeliever, the very idea of the purpose of their life being for the glory of God makes them hate God. They hate him. They hate the idea that the whole purpose of it is for the glory of God and that all things occur for his glory and all things occur for his purposes. Now, of course, the question that is often asked in a situation like this is, wait a minute, all things are for the the purposes of God? All things are for the glory of God? What about evil? What about sin? Does uh, sin glorify God? Do evil, terrible events glorify God? No. Sin does not glorify God. Evil does not glorify God. But the judgment of sin does. And the redemption from it does. All things directly or indirectly glorify God. Even the difficult situations of our life that we face. You know, we may find sickness. We will suffer in this life. But we as believers know that all of this ultimately is for His glory. Suffering directly in and of itself is not glorifying to God, but what God does with it is. The ultimate suffering occurred on the cross, but what God did on the work of the cross is glorious. All of these things directly or indirectly work towards the glory of God. So ultimately, what are we to say about all of this? Clearly, a question that we might be asking ourselves is, well, I I want to glorify God. Uh, how can I do this? Well, the reminder is, and, and there, there's a lot of things that, that we are very good at in life, but, but one of the things that we are particularly good at in our life is compartmentalizing various parts of our life. We're very good at saying, well, there's the church me, right? There's the church me where I do church things, and I hang out with my church people, and that is where I glorify God. But then there's home me, and then there's my friends me, Uh, who I am around my friends, or there's who I am as a father, there's who I am where I'm at work. And and we have these different boxes and these different compartmentalizations of our life. Who I am as a son, or who I am as a daughter, or or who I identify with or as at my work. All these various different things separating the secular from the holy. The reality is, if you are a believer, There is no separate boxes of your life. Everything you do is for the glory of God. You do not have separate boxes, separate compartmentalizations of your life. Every single thing that you are, every single thing that you do, everything that exists in your life, it all goes into one box. And that box is labeled Sola Dea Gloria. Everything that you do is for His glory. And I don't just mean singing here. Of course, when we are here at church, we want to glorify God. Uh, We want to praise up his name, and that is a very appropriate way to do that. But that is not the only way that we praise God. The way that we praise God is literally everything that we are doing. Everything that you have, everything you do, from your mindset, the purpose of all of those things is to glorify God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit very interesting though. We may struggle with all the different ways in which we may try to glorify God. But notice how quickly we we take a glorious doctrine 
called Sola Dea Gloria, and we make it about us. It's all great. Let's talk about the glory of God. When do we get to the part about what I do? When does it become about me? It's not about you. Does what you do glorify God? Yes. Is the way that you do it, does that glorify God? Yes. Consider the following. The only way that you can glorify God is because you have the Spirit. The author of Hebrews says, without faith it is impossible to glorify God. It is impossible to please Him. The only way that you can please God, the only way that you can glorify God is because you are one of His. You have the Spirit. And so it is with the Spirit that we glorify God in everything that we do. You may work hard and you may say, I, I, I can't possibly honor God in everything I do. I'm not good enough. And the answer is, you're not. You can't. And you probably know where this is going. You can't glorify God with everything in your life, but with the Spirit, you can. With the Spirit, the very worship that you give is a glorious sound in the ears of God. The unbeliever can be singing that exact same song, singing right next to you, but that brings no glory to God. You can serve your neighbors. You can extol the glories of God, and you can do many good works. And those good works, because you have the Spirit, are in fact glorifying to God. But the person serving next to you that isn't saved is not glorifying God in any way. It is because you have the Spirit that we can worship God. And everything that we do is for His glory. So we give thanks to God and we glorify God because that's what this is all about. Uh, as we mentioned, the Westminster Confession, smaller catechism, said the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Uh, John Piper uh, changed that up a little bit and he said the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And I don't necessarily disagree with that. We do glorify God when we take joy in our Father, when we declare Jesus is enough in this life and the life to come. There is nothing more than I need than Jesus. There is nothing more than I need than what He is and what He has done. We glorify God and we bring honor and praise to Him when we say, Jesus, I need you. I am not enough. I need you. And if you have not cried out to God the Father for the redemption of your sins, I implore you to do so. If you would like to lay claim to the salvation that is yours, not that glorifies man, but the salvation that glorifies God, through the work of Jesus Christ, I ask you, implore you, to humble yourself before God. Tell Him that you know that you can't, but you implore for the work of Christ to be applied in your part. And live your life for the glory of God. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, the heavens declare your glory. And so do we. It is with great humility and, and trepidation that we claim to be yours, but we are. And we claim to be yours because of what you have done. Lord, we pray that everything we do, whether we're singing songs of, of worship or serving one another as outpourings of our love for you. We pray that that would be for the praise of your glory. We need you, Lord. And we have given everything that we have, everything we are.
to you, Lord. We pray that all of this, once again, would be to the praise of your glory. In your name we pray.